Luke, can you tell us a little bit about this episode? Yeah. So earlier this year, we gathered some of the most prominent thinkers in the Newfoundland and Labrador like housing space to have a conversation and find out more about kind of the underlying like root causes of not just the housing crisis, but, you know, kind of the backbone of these issues. You know, why aren't we building enough housing? And um, the group we had assembled, they will just, in some ways, were like mind-blowing and, <laughs> you know, very eye-opening stuff um, if you aren't familiar. So we, we just had a great group assembled. We had um, people, people who knew the legal angles. We had people who knew the policy angles, um, people who are in, in nonprofits. And, um, I, I just want to note too, this was recorded before there was a tent city. So uh, some of this information, you know, if you're expecting them to talk about that, um, this was recorded previously. So um, anyway, but I think it's, uh, you know, if you want to know a little, get a little deeper, like not just from a story standpoint, but, you know, a policy standpoint, um, I think this is a great place to start. Okay, let's listen in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indie Housing Podcast Housing Forum. We're really glad that you could make it. My name is Luke Quinton. I'm uh, one of the co-hosts of the podcast. And um, we have a great panel here today. <laughs> After asking for the bios, I'm now saying that that makes really bad radio. So um, maybe you guys could just, we could just go down the line and you could just briefly um, tell us a little bit about who you are, why you're here, and uh, I guess what you do. Um, Kevin, you'll start? Sure. I'm Kevin O'Shea. I'm the executive director of the Public Legal Information Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. We're a nonprofit organization that uh, provides legal information and education to people of the province and uh, really covering any legal issue, including housing, residential tenancies, other land issues. So Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for being here. Um, could we pass the mic? Thanks. <laughs> Great. Uh, Doug Pawson, Executive Director with Then Homeless of St. John's, and we serve as a system planning organization that works to coordinate so supports and services uh, across the housing and homeless sector here in St. John's, as well as, you know, provide some uh, gaps, fill gaps in, in public systems as well. Okay. Fantastic. I'm Hope Jameson. I am uh, nebulously described as a housing advocate in these sorts of fora most often. Um, I most recently was working at the Community Housing Transformation Center as program manager for Newfoundland and Labrador, um, as well as coordinating the center's environment priority across the country. So I got to talk to folks all across Canada in that role. Uh, and before that, I was the St. John City Council lead on housing from 2017 to 2020, uh, which was the time when we brought in the affordable housing strategy. So involved in the engagement process around that. Okay, thank you for being here. My name is Sherwin Flight. I'm the Landlord Engagement Lead with End Homelessness St. John's uh, and their Home Connect program. Uh, so the Home Connect program helps people that are experiencing barriers to housing find safe and stable housing in the community. Uh, for the past 10 years, I've also run the uh, Newfoundland and Labrador uh, Landlord and Tenant Support Group on Facebook as well. Uh, so that's given me a lot of insight into different issues that people face around the province. Awesome, and can't wait to get into that, um, which is probably an episode all on its own. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. I just want to start really broadly because, you know, we are um, hoping to reach a general audience with this, and I know you guys, um, in many cases, are, like, tightly involved with the, the details and the specifics. But maybe just in the broadest sense, to start off, um, how do you see the current state of housing in um, Newfoundland, the city St. John's, just because there's so many people in the metro area, rural Newfoundland, Labrador, like where, where does the province um, stack up, I guess, in terms of 
housing right now? Uh, I could jump in. Um, I have seen a change over the last couple of years because we run some rental groups on Facebook as well. Um, I think if we go back maybe two or three years, uh, you know, we used to hear a lot from landlords saying that they would set up viewings and, and no one would show up. Um, you know, there was a lot of trouble with that. Uh, there were a lot more vacant units, so tenants kind of had the pick of things. Uh, these days, it's kind of flipped around completely. Uh, landlords will set up viewings, and there'll be 15 or 20 people show up to look at the exact same place. Uh, so there's a lot more competition uh, than there was a few years ago. So uh, I think that's in, uh, indicative of the housing shortage uh, that we're going through right now. Uh, it's a lot more... Uh, time-consuming to find a place. Uh, some people have said, you know, it's taken them five or six months to find a place these days compared to before where, uh, you know, you could find a place relatively quickly. Um, so I'm not 100% sure what's behind all of that, um, but it is something that you're able to see. I'll jump in. So a, a service that I enjoy providing is uh Let's talk about data. Um, and the, so the vacancy rate has fallen by over half in the last two years. So we went, we went from 7.1% in 2019 to now it's 2.9% as of October of 2022. Is that a provincial number? That is provincially, yes. Um, and, and it actually doesn't vary all that much by region if you look at it either. Um, so... You know what that means is your supply relative to demand has has shifted markedly. However, two point nine percent quite healthy by national standards. Um, so that said, I think a lot of what we're looking at is a mismatch of what's in the market to what people need, can afford, and are looking for. Um, you know, if you make minimum wage in Newfoundland and Labrador, the amount that you can afford per month based on CMHC's benchmark of 30% of your income per month is $725. And the average rental unit costs $952 a month. So there's a big gap between those two things. Um, Sherwin and I have had conversations about how long it's been since social assistance uh, shelter allowance rates have gone up. And is it 2014? So nine years, if we think about how the rental market has shifted over the last nine years, it's it's $372 a month. That's less than 40% of the market average. Was, was there a time when those numbers matched up at all? Or No, no certainly not. <laughs> um, it, it, it was bad, and now it's worse, um, I guess is what I would say about that. So I think it's just that what is in the market is not necessarily fitting well with who needs rental housing in Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, just to jump in too, because I think what's unique uh, in St. John's and around the province is the high rates of of home ownership compared to national averages. Where there's a there's a really high rate of of home ownership. I think it's sixty to seventy percent in St. John's, uh, and that that means when houses are or like rental housing stock is is lost or there's competition. Um, you know, it just drives the price up and makes it further unaffordable. And nationally, and, and even locally, we're seeing like new entrance into homelessness that we that you just hadn't seen before. And there's no real system, you know, emergency system that can capture all of this. And it's it's going to cause, uh, you know, locally and nationally some significant uh, challenges. Maybe this is will become obvious to people, but um, I saw a stat a few weeks ago that basically said, you know, for every hundred dollars. Uh, your rental, you know, your rent rates go up per month. A certain percentage of people are then homeless. Um, uh, you can track it. So, uh, kind of staggering to realize, like, we have this precarious system that um, is exacerbated by market issues. And, yeah. 
more fun data from the census. Yes, um, I had such a fun time in February because they both came out like round about the same time and all spreadsheets were made. Um, 34% of renter households in the St. John's metropolitan area live in unaffordable housing. Um, and when you're in that kind of marginal space, changes in the rental market can really impact people. So to that point, I, I think there are a substantial number of people who are in that precarious position. Um, and another important point is that we don't have rent control in Newfoundland and Labrador. So landlords have to give six months notice, but in theory, every six months, your landlord can raise your rent as much as they want to. Um, so that's a major issue for folks, given that you know their incomes are not growing. And, uh, and with the changes in the market and the increase in demand, the business case obviously is there and there's no cap on that. Um, maybe just from the end homelessness guys, um, so is it correlating? Or do we have numbers that say there are more people experiencing homelessness in the province right now? I mean, locally in St. John's, we, we're seeing numbers grow at, uh, at more significant rates than we have in the past, over the past couple of years, for sure. Um, and there has been some of that research that you referenced there, Luke, from Ron Ebon out of the University of Calgary around looking at the incremental changes in homeless numbers by that $100 threshold. And he and, and Ron's drawing on, on data from around the country on that. And and it's localized to, to, to each sort of province and community. So there is data that's emerging that's showing, you know, there's a there, there's a... I would say it's a burgeoning crisis, if not already a full-on crisis. I think there's a misunderstanding, too, uh, in the community with regard to lower-income people that receive subsidies to help pay rent. Uh, I think there are a lot of people that think that, you know, if the landlord increases the rent, then the subsidy will just go up and everything will be fine, uh, where certain things like income support, the rates are fixed in the legislation. So, you know, just increasing the rent by, you know, 20 or $30 might make a big difference to someone because their funding might not necessarily increase to account for that too. So that would be coming out of their sort of living benefits or their personal benefits. So like someone has to go into the house and pass a bill or a, you know, adjust for, the bill to- For income support, yeah. Uh, the amounts are actually fixed right in the uh, Income and Employment Support Act. Uh, so unless the government amends or updates that act, then the amounts stay the same. And is that a, <laughs> what's that process like? Uh, it doesn't work well. Um, we, like we were just saying, it uh, hasn't gone up since 2014. Uh, we know that, oh, wow. you know, everything else has gone up since 2014. So it kind of, uh, you know, makes things more uneven as the time goes on. I mean, that's where we're heading for a decade, yeah. Just to jump in there as well, I think a lot comes down to provincial legislation and the Residential Tenancies Act having a big impact. That was updated in, in 2018. There was a new version of the act passed, but, you know, did not include things like uh, caps on, on rental raises or um, uh, uh, no fault eviction, uh, discussing that either. So that's another issue we can get into. Um, so a lot of this would require going back into that act and, and looking at possible amendments. Um, are there people advocating in this province for things like uh, rent control or some sort of like delay on rental increases? I, I complain feel like about Sherwin. it on some kind of a basis, but no one's listening to me, yeah. apparently. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just to come back to the legislation component, right? Because those, those acts get reviewed uh, every so often. And right now, the Income and Employment Support Act is being reviewed. 
And so that's a three-year review. They're reviewing each component of the, of the, le- uh, the act. Um, but there's likely no real change to the rates uh, and for another two years minimum at this point. And so what we have for folks who are, are you know, living on income support or, or very low income and relying on some form of, of uh, provincial income support uh, amount is a patchwork of rental subsidies. So we have our income support basic rate like Sherwin Hope talked about. We have the Canada Housing Benefit that's designed to support um, the difference between what an income support program might provide and what the market rental provides. But it's a patchwork subsidy that is, it doesn't really work well in the context of having payments lined up for, for landlords, having a, a firm understanding of what the amounts are going to be on a, on a, you know, ba- on a monthly basis. The other piece, too, is heating subsidies, right? Like heating and oil subsidies are, are provided, but it's never to the extent that's required. And so, you know, we get requests through end homelessness for, you know, we're I'm anticipating through the spring and summer that we're going to see a wave of requests to help with utility arrears. And that's a real growing area for folks because when you have to trade off rent and food, you know, those, those, those rental arrears amounts will add up over time and eventually lead to a disconnect notice. So these things, these patchwork remedies, so to speak, they don't really work. It sounds incredibly precarious um, and kind of, you know, just sounds very concerning. I mean, are there other, just to bring it back to the province, like, are there examples of other things at the province that um, work better, that are have a more regular schedule for, because obviously nothing costs less. You know, um, inflation exists, and especially in this moment. So are there other things in the province that are sort of like scheduled for, like a three-year review? That's sort of mind-boggling, isn't it? I mean, you can do a lot of things in three years. That's a pretty quick timeline in terms of a legislative (laughs) review, to be honest. Yeah, and I mean, what it does also is it buys the government time. Right. So then they say anytime anyone brings anything up, they say it's in review, it's in review. And so to Doug's point, nothing changes. So um, discouraging. I, I believe uh, a while back they uh, tied minimum wage uh, to the cost of living. So we see regular increases. Uh, some of them are small. I think we've seen, you know, one minimum wage increase that was like 10 cents. Um, but it is tied to something and it continues to go up. Uh, so there are examples of um, like indexed rates in, in different uh, provincial programs, uh, but we haven't seen that with income support and some of these other ones. So are there other provinces, are there examples of other provinces who are um, that are, I guess, um, doing this in a more um, progressive, proactive way? I only know that. I only know of Quebec as indexing their income support program to, to uh, inflation and cost of living. Uh, but I don't think any other provinces or territories are doing anything I was just going to say, just in terms of residential tendencies, I think, you know, other provinces are are putting caps on on the amount landlords can raise each year. There there was a debate I saw in Nova Scotia. They're debating, you know, the the cap going from 2% a year to 5% a year. Um, And people are are opposed to that, but that's, there's at least a cap there. Um, You know, even looking outside of of Canada, I, I was in the UK last month and was pretty surprised there was a debate going on around um, uh, no-fault evictions was was removed, I think just last year, by the by the Conservative government, like not exactly the bastion of progressive <laughs> progressivism. So um, there's, I think, innovation and there's, there's ideas that are happening in other provinces and other countries as well that we can look at and, and um, see if we can adapt for, for our province. 
I have a lot of thoughts about rent control. Yeah. Um, Let's get into this. Yeah, yeah uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm starting a PhD stuff about this in the fall because I'm so obsessed with it. Because we don't have a definitive answer about rent control. You look at conservative sources, they say rent control is just bad. You look at liberal sources, they say it's just good. Neither of those things is true. Um, so, uh, for example, if we're talking about rent caps, if your rent cap is very low, and then changes in, for example, the building consumer price index far outstrip that, and you only have controls on rental increases within existing tenancies, that incentivizes eviction. So that makes tenants worse off. Um, so you know there are a number of different levers under the umbrella of rent control that you can pull on, but it's important to do that in a way that actually protects tenants and doesn't make them worse off, and in some ways, that means making the business case for being a landlord and maintaining a tenancy makes sense. Mm. So, Just so I, maybe you got to run that by me again. So what is it that incentivizes um, evictions? Uh, keeping your rental increase cap too low right. when there isn't a cap on increasing rent rates between tenancies. So if I'm living in a unit, my landlord can only raise my rent 2%, but if he kicks me out and gets somebody else in, he can charge them whatever he likes. Gotcha. Yeah. So it has to be across... Yes. It has to be across the board. It can't be, uh, you know, if Bob moves out, then Susan, who moves in, has to pay double. Exactly. And it has yeah. to make sense in terms of what it costs to maintain a rental unit, too, because you don't want units to fall into disrepair for, like, reasons of, of cash flow. Yeah. Let's, maybe we can talk with Sherwin a, a bit about that. Um, you know, so you run this. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the group you moderate on Facebook or you co-moderate. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, so it's the Newfoundland Tenant and Landlord Support Group. Uh, we've been around for about 10 years now, uh, so we provide uh, advice and information about the Residential Tenancies Act to landlords and tenants across the province. Uh, so right now it's about 25,000 members just above that. Um, keeps growing each month, so you know we're uh, one of the go-to sources for information about the RTA in the province. Was this just a private initiative, or was this tied to your work? Or? Uh, no, it just started off as something um, that I did on my own sort of uh, as a volunteer uh, to try to get some of this information out there. Uh, I noticed back then, you know, 10 years ago, uh, very few people understood the Residential Tenancies Act or even, you know, knew that it existed. So to get us where we needed to be, you know, there was a lot of work to do, and that started with educating people on how things were at the time. Maybe the most fascinating thing about this um, <laughs> incredible Facebook group, like one of the only reasons to be on Facebook, I would say, um, is that it's it's not just the tenant support group, it's the landlord and tenant support group. So you see posts from both parties. Um, and I mean, in this day and age, like conflict is so um, sort of endemic in the culture that um, these groups coming together is almost unheard of. And they go at it sometimes, though. It's been a challenge, uh, I won't <laughs> lie. Um, yeah. But it's, uh, it was a deliberate choice that we made. Okay. Um, landlords and tenants need to get along offline. If they can't get along on the internet, then there's no hope at all. So we started off you know, from you know, looking at it that you know, it's that relationship that's important, and we need to figure out how to help people get along even if they don't agree on something. Um, it also helps, uh, you know, sort of even things out because I've been in some other groups, uh, some other provinces that are just uh, tenants or just landlords, and it's very one-sided. Uh, you know, some of the stuff being discussed is not uh, not legal, uh, and it just sort Wait, of like, echoes. It's, what do you mean, like not legal? Um, you know, like landlords talking about ways to try to evict tenants uh, that you know 
haven't done anything to be evicted, tenants trying to figure out ways to get out of rental agreements, uh, you know, without having to pay anything. Um, basically things that are, you know, against the spirit of, you know, a positive landlord-tenant relationship. Uh, so by having both groups together, they get to see the, the struggles and the problems that the other side faces too, uh, and give them a little more insight into sort of the whole picture instead of just, you know, one small piece of it. Um, not to get too deep into this, but I think the, the, the post on that group that really first blew my mind was, I know we could go so far into this, but um, <laughs> there was a woman who um, was writing in pretty good English, but obviously wasn't a native speaker, and she was describing her rental situation somewhere in the west end of St. John's, and um, I believe, this is a few years back, her landlord insisted that he was allowed to put cameras inside her apartment, and he did so. And uh, the wave of support and information and like legal data that came her way was really heartening, but you couldn't sort of escape the fact that this had been done to her. Uh, do you remember that case? <laughs> uh, I don't remember that specific yeah. one, um, but there have been a few similar ones like that where tenants have found cameras. Uh, I know one was uh, in the media here uh, maybe three or four years ago. Um, there was a property management company involved and the tenants had found that there were cameras throughout the home connected to a system in the attic. Uh, so privacy, privacy just as a general topic uh, is, is a big one. Uh, it's one that we still struggle with when it comes to, uh, you know, landlords doing things like uh, background checks on social media and stuff without consent, um, you know, calling around, you know, trying to find stuff out about people without asking. And, and under the privacy laws, a lot of this stuff you can do if you let the person know that that's what you're going to do, what you're collecting and how you're going to use it. So instead of just asking for permission, they just do it sort of behind the scenes. So privacy in general has been a real struggle. It's probably still one of our, our biggest struggles. I think what got me about this one is it was so overt. He just did it and said, you know, these are the cameras. Um, they're going up and too bad. And uh, it wasn't it kind hidden, of, you know. It kind of falls under the, it's my house, it's my rules. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, a small group of landlords that sort of seem to think that because they own the house that they can do whatever they want. Um, and no matter how many times you show them, you know, the different laws and the different rules and stuff that apply to them, they don't think any of it, you know, applies to their situation that somehow they're different than all of the other landlords. Uh, most of them, most landlords aren't that way, um, but there is a, a small subset that has been uh, a bit of a challenge to sort of try to get the information to over the, you know, the last 10 years or so. One, one thing that I find really fascinating from that Facebook group is the number of examples that folks share, both on the landlord and on the tenant side, of just overt discrimination. And like some of this should be obvious, right? Like I think, I think we, we yeah. should, in theory, all know sort of basic human rights things. Um, but, you know, discriminating about income source is something that's super common. Family composition, another one, you know, and that's the kind of thing where in the market where we are with that, contracted vacancy rate, I think you see more and more of those things. And I'm, I'm wondering, Sherwin, if you've observed that in, in the group, has that become more of an issue as things have, have shifted or no? Um, I don't think it's become more of an issue. I think it's been an issue all along. Um, it's been uh, something that's been a challenge for a lot of people for you know a, a lot of years. Um, I did 
ask uh, sort of in a group survey a couple of years ago if people noticed more or less discrimination, you know, after we'd been sort of educating people about it for four or five years. Uh, and they said that they had noticed more, um, but in the comments elaborated and said that it's because they're better able to identify discrimination now that they didn't realize was discrimination before. Uh, so some, some examples, uh, like from here in St. John's, there was a, uh, a rental listing that said Caucasians only. So that was all over the media. Everyone knew that that was wrong. <laughs> Racism is wrong. Everybody knows that. Yeah. But when it comes to like age discrimination, discrimination about source of income, those people seem to be a little pickier about when they apply or how they apply. Like even though it all falls under human rights, they they have a line drawn between some of them, and they say you can't be racist. You know, you can't do this. But maybe it's okay to do these things because you have a good reason for it. Uh, so I think people, uh, you know, misunderstand uh, how human rights work, and that you know all of them are equally as important, and it's not just you know one or two that are important, and the rest that we can just ignore and and you know apply when it's convenient. <laughs> uh, maybe Kevin, that's a good time for you to jump in there. Well, just going to say, I think. <laughs> Then the challenge, though, is to address those human rights issues. Even overt discrimination means going into the Human Rights Commission process. So it's not e not necessarily something that the Residential Tenancies Board could deal with. And right. you know, then then it's even challenging when it's not so overt, like that that ad you mentioned. Um, you know, less overt signs of of discrimination, having to to try and prove that at the Human Rights Commission, and that process taking a long time to work through. So it's it makes things difficult and you're having a whole other system besides what we have set up for dispute resolution with the Residential Tenancies Board. It suddenly gets booted into this special yeah, circumstance. Which frankly, it could take years to unravel and to, to deal with. So that's, that's not very helpful for the person who's, who's in, that, uh, in that rental situation in that moment. Very uh, naive legal question <laughs> coming at you. Uh, are there consequences for violating the human rights of a renter? Yes, there are, and th and that's uh, discrimination in rental situations is covered under the Human Rights Act, and um, so there's there's powers that the Human Rights Commission has if it gets to the the hearing stage, and they would try to mediate in advance of that, um, but just it's it's a lengthy process, so it, it can take quite a while for that to that to be dealt with. Eye-opening stuff, I think. Um. Another thing uh, that people have run into here when it comes to discrimination, uh, something that Kevin mentioned earlier with the no recent terminations. Uh, so because we allow a landlord to evict someone for no reason, mm. uh, what we've seen is that a lot of times there is a reason, um, but the reason is something that would otherwise be illegal. Uh, so discrimination is one of those. We've seen, um, you know, I don't, I've lost track now, uh, the number of situations we've seen where a landlord has said face to face to someone, I'm evicting you for this reason that's discriminatory, here's your three month notice. And then the tenant doesn't really have any way to prove to the Human Rights Commission that there was ever discrimination at all because that's not what was put in writing. What was put in writing was you have three months to move and I don't need to tell you why. So those two, discrimination and the no reason evictions are, are linked uh, in a lot of the cases that we see. So you can, evict someone with no reason given, you know, assuming that there really is no reason, um, but you have to, it's got to wait three months, is that right? Yeah, it's a, a three-month notice uh, to evict. And the, the question I always ask is, you know, how many landlords wake up one morning and just decide for no reason at all, I'm going to evict someone? So there is always a reason. Uh, and, you know, putting that reason in writing doesn't necessarily seem like a bad thing because it 
would give tenants that are treated unfairly uh, you know, another avenue to be able to pursue that further. So, I mean, is that the kind of thing we should get rid of? Is that something that happens in other parts of this country? No, uh, reason, eviction. no reason evictions, I think, are one of the things that people here would like to see eliminated. Uh, not everyone. There are some people that like them for obvious reasons. Um, but I think there's more, uh, more support for getting rid of those than there is for any sort of formal rent control. Um, like if we look at those two, it's the no reason evictions that continue to be the top concern. And I'm not sure the situation in every province, but I, like Ontario, for example, there's um, very limited situations where you can, can evict someone for no reason. You need to put it in writing, as Sherman was saying. I'm not sure every, uh, every other province what their, what their uh, rules are on that. I haven't actually like, checked it out, but in the media recently, they said it was just us in the Yukon, I think, that allow no reason evictions. Okay, and, and no, no uh, cap on rent. rent. Rental increases. I think it's just us in the Yukon as well. What so, is that? Yeah. <laughs> Why? <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Um, kind of as you said, Sherwin. Like, there's always a reason. The reason could be you want to, you know, reno it. You want a, your cousin to move in. You know, you need the space for your nan. <laughs> like, yep. or you're super racist and discriminatory. So, I mean, there's always like literally. W there cannot think, be no reason. Uh, like I think that's the thing. Um, as as people become more familiar with how those systems work in other provinces, uh, you know, they open up to it a little more. Because uh, some people make it sound like uh, you know you can never evict a person. Um, but you know, when you look at a place like Ontario, what they've done is in their law they've given a very comprehensive list of reasons. So if your family wants to move in there, that's a legitimate reason. But each one comes with a different notice period um, that you have to give the tenant. So it's not about making it impossible for a, uh, you know, a landlord to use their property for, you know, different things that might come up. It's about making sure that the tenant is treated fairly in those cases and that they're not evicted for no reason. Like there has to be a reason of some sort. And I believe there's, there's requirements for compensation of the tenants in some situations too. Like if there's an eviction, in, in, this is in Ontario, um, you know, evictions to complete renovations or because a family member wants to move in, there's notice period, there's some level of compensation that might need to be paid to the tenant, reflecting, okay, now they need to go out and find another place to live. There's uh, also more accountability built into uh, the Ontario system. So if a landlord says, uh, I don't know, for example, you know, uh, I want my, my parents to move in, and so you move out, and then the next week you see it up on Facebook Marketplace for double the rent, there's a process that you can go through then. Um, you know, I think there's compensation involved, and I think they, uh, they also issue fines. So if a landlord gives a reason, it's expected that you know, that's the real reason, and they can be held accountable if that's not true. Is the internet and uh, text messaging, you know, um, messaging services, is the, the paper trail, the digital paper trail there, um, changing uh, any of this, these situations? Or is it just moving it onto a different medium? Uh, I don't think it's really changing them a whole lot. Like uh, when our law changed in 2018, uh, we allowed electronic uh, documentation. Um, that hasn't really changed. Uh, you know, much uh, it makes it easier for people to serve those, um, but it's all notices that were were being served some other way before. I guess I mean meant more like you know if you're being discriminated against, like in some of those cases that are posted on your group, there's a paper trail where. Oh, like, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, there are uh, a number of people that I've spoken to uh, that you know they've shown me copies of messages and emails that they've received, uh, and you know it, it does show discrimination in writing, uh, you know 
from the other party. So it's a lot easier when you have it in writing, no matter how it is, if it's text message, email, um, you know, at least that's something to go by, where in the past a lot of it was uh, you know, face-to-face -face or, or spoken, and then you knew what happened, but you had no way to prove it. Yeah, something was told to you. You can't you know, take that very far. Um, actually, Sharon, before we leave this, I'm just curious, is there a specific uh, incident, like either on the landlord side or the tenant side, that really um, speaks to the value of this group? Um, something that sticks out to you? Um, if, if I'm thinking about the value of the group, I'd have to look back to 2017 when they were doing the consultations for the new Residential Tenancies Act. Uh, we submitted uh, 28 pages um, of sort of written recommendations that highlighted sort of what the problem was, why it was a problem, and possible ways to address those. Uh, and then we met with the government uh, a couple of times during that consultation process, and a lot of our recommendations made it into uh, the newer version of the act. So I think that's the value there uh, to sort of take the words, uh, you know, from the government at the time, it was an easy way for them to sort of take, you know, a province worth of information and sort of filter that down without them having to go around and talk to, uh, you know, everyone the way they would normally do consultations. So it kind of makes it easier to sort of see what's on the go across the province and then filter that down. And we do that on a regular, um, like in terms of communicating back and forth with service in Finland about what we're seeing and, you know, the problems people are facing and that kind of stuff. This is a little segment that we're calling The Time Machine, where we look at different housing movements in history. The federal government is currently looking to relaunch the wartime housing effort. Before we delve into this, I think we should learn a little about the wartime housing effort. So we're going to back up, hop in our time machine, and imagine we're in the 1950s. So Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry climbing the charts. The Twilight Zone is already in reruns. And Canadians are in the middle of a post-world baby boom which is really complicated because after the Second World War, there was a massive lack of homes. So we're in the middle of a huge, no good, very bad housing crisis. And the federal government addresses this with a pre-approved design catalog, which speeds up construction. These homes are mostly built in the 1950s, but continue to be built until the 70s. And they're known as victory homes or strawberry box homes. And there's a slew of them still standing here in St. John's. They're kind of like little Cape Cods. The roofs are gabled. There's this charming clapboard siding. They're sturdy, economical, warm, and small. They're very small. So the Canadian government is going to relaunch this program in with housing sector stakeholders in January. They're going to look at low-rise construction, bungalows, split levels, small dwellings. They're looking into modular, prefabricated homes. Later, the government will look into consulting with high-rise construction stakeholders. The idea behind this category catalog catalog <laughs> sorry the idea behind this catalog is that it's going to speed up building it's going to make building fast and efficient because we need homes now the government is especially interested in cheap homes um, they want future residents to be able to deal with rising electricity and heating costs so they're looking into things being as energy efficient as possible so 
like how did these things go wrong in the past or how might they go wrong next? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of ways this can go wrong. Uh, one is that it's going to involve provincial and municipal co- cooperation. So it's going to get sticky. You know, different cities have different laws about what can be built and where. So there might have this pre-approved catalog where things can go up fast, but then it, a city might say, no, no tiny homes are allowed here. So things can get very, very complicated and sticky. Um, the strawberry box homes were really well made and they held up pretty well. But can we trust stakeholders to create safe, efficient homes? I don't know. Uh, and finally, and this is not a concern I personally share, but uh, there are a lot of people that think when housing is done in bulk, it can be not very aesthetically pleasing. You know, square boxes, that kind of thing. I mean, compared to our current uh, McMansions and suburbs. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that argument could be made, too. Uh, and so that's the time machine. Um, just to get to rural Newfoundland and not to you know, stick too much in the, the St. John's Metro, um, are there specific challenges out there, um, you know, legally um, or otherwise, for rural renters? Supply is a massive, massive, massive issue. Um, so in terms of, you know, subsidized housing, and all housing is really the only game in town, and there's a massive maintenance deficit, especially in rural areas. Um, so there are a lot of units lying fallow because they're in need of repairs. And uh, and to me, like, this is really the low-hanging fruit. Like, this is an imminently solvable problem. Um, but it requires political will and a few million dollars. Um and then, you know, otherwise folks are relying on the private market with all of the issues just discussed. Um, and there are even higher rates of home ownership relative to, to renter households in rural Newfoundland. But a lot of those units are in disrepair um, or folks are in the situation where this condition of the property or simply the way that uh, utility costs have changed over time puts them in core housing need just from having to heat their home. Uh, so... The issues look a little bit different, I think. Um, rural homelessness looks really different. Um, so, of course, Happy Valley Goose Bay being the most evident example of that and the way that that is being handled uh, is appalling, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, in, in rural Newfoundland and, and Labrador, often homelessness looks like sleeping on Nan's couch, sleeping in your car, sleeping in a tent in the woods, and it's much harder to quantify for those reasons. Um, so it's it's a challenge to get um, an idea of the order of magnitude of the problem. Um, so I, uh, I think it'll be interesting to get some better data about that. We don't have time to get into this, but um, actually, could you say a little bit, or could someone say a little bit about what's going on in Happy Valley Goose Bay? So um, there are a, a substantial number of individuals in Happy Valley Goose Bay who are sleeping in tents in the woods. Um, and I believe it was last year, uh, the solution to that was to cut down the woods. Um, yeah, uh, because somehow that, that solves the problem. And you know, the, the shelters are full and shelter stays are lasting 400 days for a single individual, that kind of thing. So I mean, that's obviously not functioning as intended because there simply aren't enough rental units, there aren't enough beds, the housing is unaffordable. So there's a whole bunch of layers there. Um, now I know a bunch of folks in community are doing some conversations, some some planning around what a solution to that would look like. So those discussions are underway, I believe. Um, the, the trouble with these things is that when it comes to remedying a shortage of housing and of services, those things take a long time. 
and meanwhile people are still homeless. So um, it's it's good that those discussions are happening, but it does still mean that it, we're we're a long way from seeing that resolve. Uh, another challenge, I think, with rural, uh, in some of the smaller towns, uh, all the rental units in the town are owned by the same person. Uh, so, you know, if you run into a problem, say, with a substandard property or, you know, maybe you just want to move, there's there's not really a way to, you know, to get away uh, from, you know, the person that you're renting from now and move into a different unit because they own all of them. Uh, another challenge is that even if that's not the case, some of those towns are so small that you know, everyone knows everyone and everyone knows everyone's business. So, you know, if you have a falling out with your landlord, whatever the reason may be, then, you know, most of the town probably knows that and it becomes harder for you to find another place to rent as well, where, uh, you know, in a bigger place like St. John's, that's not as much of an issue. You know, you can leave one landlord and go rent to another one. And, you know, a lot of times that's fine, but in smaller communities, that's a bit more difficult. Notable too, and, and this is not just a rural problem, this is a, a province-wide problem, but 40% of our rental units are owned by real estate investment trusts. So there's there's a handful of publicly traded companies who are controlling nearly half our rental market. And as you said, Sherwin, if, if folks run afoul of one or two of those, it substantially limits their options, especially because those players generally act in the lower end of the, the market. So, you know, that sort of concentration of power in the rental market is a, a big issue. Where are these companies based? Are they local companies? Uh, it varies, um, mostly mainland, um, but a lot of them kind of act across the the country. Um, and there's no law to prevent that? Absolutely not. No, the, the changes in uh, in 1993 were actually specifically to to allow that to happen. We, uh, yeah, at the federal <laughs> level. Fun, fun story about <laughs> Canadian housing policy. Super exciting stuff. In 1993, as the federal government divested itself of all responsibility for housing, um, they also created legislation that made it possible for real estate investment trusts to exist. And the minister responsible for doing this, you know what his next job was? Running a real estate investment trust. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Love to see it. Gorgeous. Who was this? I forget his name. Okay. I, I should remember it so I can say it yeah. and be like, that guy, and then spit on the ground. 93, not a good year for terrible, many parts terrible of this country. Terrible year. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that's fascinating. I think I did see a story, might have been from the States um, last month, about a city that was going to not let that happen anymore, um, not let private... Um, companies or maybe it was publicly traded companies um, buy up housing stock and rent. Yeah. I don't know reference specifically to that, but I think what what's really important is that governments at all levels, all orders of government have financial assets invested in these firms that are actively eroding the affordable housing stock in those communities. And it's just it's part of the financialization of the the whole economy, right? So you know we've seen that with you know, financial crisis in 2008 and 12 and, and recent, very recent in the U.S. and the U.K. And when you can come out of, when you can financialize and turn a, a debt into a commodity and sell that on a market, that becomes a real challenge. And um, that's what we've seen is the financialization of the housing market, as, as Hope's talked about. And governments, again, they, they have financial assets that sit in these, in these open markets that are investing in these firms. And there's no real control about how do you how do you divest those assets? Because we have money market managers who, who, who manage those funds for everybody. And we just blindly give money over to them. They manage it. We need a return for 
or for whatever reasons, and we see this at the at the highest levels. For example, the CPP Investment Board that has massive holdings in these types of financial firms, and then on the flip side, you have the federal government now providing rental subsidies through the Canada Housing Benefit provincially uh, across the provinces that then reinvest those top-ups, rental top-ups, into the vast majority of these firms. So it's a vicious cycle here that's that's really playing out. And when your housing stock, especially like, like Hope was saying, the lower end, is dominated by these firms, I mean, where it's just a transfer of wealth, and there's no mechanism to stop it. But if, if governments, municipalities, provinces, federal governments started to look at where their assets, their financial assets are being invested, I think it would be a, a pretty eye-opening um, exercise for them to see just how much they're being investing investing in those exact firms eroding their affordable housing stock. And I think that really uh, drives home the point of like why it is so difficult to get meaningful advocacy around this stuff is because there are so many layers of obfuscation, right? There's so many layers of like other hands doing the thing. Um, so, you know, folks who have investments in, you know, RRSPs or whatever, may not be aware that their money is invested in these things because it is being done by a third party. Um, and because understanding mortgage-backed securities is complex, um, it's, it's difficult for everyday folks who have a bunch of other things to worry about to wrap their heads around, oh, wow, no, this is the reason everything is falling apart. Um, there's a great book called Urban Warfare uh, written by the former UN uh, Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing, uh, which is a, like, I mean, it's a big, fat 300-page book, but if you want a nice explainer on why everything is garbage and how we built a different house of cards to replace the house of cards we had before the 2008 <laughs> crisis, uh, I highly, highly recommend that. Happy to have a book club if anybody wants to. Um, but, you know, the, the fact that there are so many layers here, and I think this applies across the housing sector because so many things affect people's ability to have and maintain housing. Um, I, th I think it is very difficult to get the kind of bird's eye view that you need to really understand why we're in the position that we're in. Yeah, I mean, if you have the Canada pension plan, right, the CPP investing in these sketchy, uh, well, I don't know if they're sketchy, I guess it's a good investment. They're playing the rule, the game by the rules as they exist, right? They're not doing anything that is actually illegal, immoral, probably, yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but not against the law, right? Yeah. And that's where we create these programs, like rental subsidy programs, right? So, you know, you get a, a, a big firm coming into a community that houses, say, 200, 250 people. And, and I saw this when I was in Ottawa. For example, you get a, a firm known, very known uh, around, around the country that will erode an affordable housing neighborhood. Uh, they purchase the asset, often for pennies on the dollar, and they're publicly traded. And they know that when they create you know, uh, the, the next round of housing, whether it's, you know, luxury or condos or whether it's, you know, something probably similar that could be affordable. Um, they know that these other subsidy programs will top it up. They know that they can ar artificially influence the, the rental market dynamics because they can raise the rent. And then we have programs that peg the rental subsidies to the rent of the market. So it, again, if if firms are know they they know this, and then that we create programs uh, on the flip side that will allow people to access the subsidy so they can afford the rent, it's a transfer of wealth. I, I think you just blew my mind. <laughs> it's very well, which which is a convenient segue into you know how how we solve this 
not just with uh, legislation, but also with robust, substantial, meaningful, long-term investment in community and affordable housing that is publicly owned and owned by community, which is then not vulnerable to the sorts of, of influence that Doug just described. I want to get into that because um, when I look around St. John's, um, I see whole neighborhoods that were built in a past generation's public housing program. You know, um, CMHC, um, Newfoundland Housing, I guess the city as well had a hand in a lot of these things. And, you know, um, everyone kind of, th they're easy to see in some ways, like the architecture is like very basic um, and they're, it's like a predictable pattern. What happened and why don't we do that anymore? 1993. <laughs> um, but but really, though, there was a massive shift. So um, after sort of 1945, the federal government invested hugely in uh, the construction of affordable rental housing across the country. We got that starting when we joined Canada in 1949. Um, and... So there was a shift in the 70s that moved less towards um, big blocks of public housing and more towards uh, mixed income communities. Lovely. That's, if we could turn back the clock and just keep doing that, I'd be really happy, but oh well, here we are. Um, and then there was a devolution to provinces um, slowly over time, but the sort of like, the ax really fell in 1993, at which point the government ceased to be involved in, in the provision of affordable housing entirely. Um, and that was the case until 20. 2018 when the uh, the national housing strategy finally came in so big 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 gap and look we have a housing crisis surprise um and, and so this is you know we don't have to wonder what happens when we leave the provision of affordable housing up to the private market because that's why we are where we are now um now i mean the national housing strategy has been in place for some years. I think none of us are super happy with the pace at which that money has rolled out. And I was working with groups all across Canada trying to get money from CMHC, their average approval for the fund that gets you architectural drawings and things of that nature. The last time I looked, their approval timeline was 400 days. Um, so we talk about a housing wow. crisis. We are certainly not acting like it is a housing crisis. Well, that tacks into the affordability, right, of, of a lot. You know, you have a sitting asset there that can't be built on for maybe several years. Holding a piece of land is really expensive, and most community organizations can't manage to do that. Um, and then... There's um, the Rapid Housing Initiative of 2020-21 uh, was a really interesting case because, of course, we saw the cost of building materials go up radically in that time. So there were groups who got a certain amount of funding to deliver a project, and then all of a sudden that project is two, three hundred thousand dollars more than what they've got funded and they've got nowhere to get that money from um so then they have a project which they can't complete which prevents them from getting their final installment of funds so it's you know they have a 75 percent built affordable housing project <laughs> that no one can live in um so i think there there are a lot of ways that things could be going better the chief uh thing to recommend these last five years of canadian or six years of canadian housing policy is that they exist which is good. <laughs> I don't want to be a negative Nelly, but I think there is a lot that we could be doing faster to make that happen. That being said, like some of these projects, I guess, are moving forward. Um, there's a proposal in Pleasantville now to put um, some four buildings, I think, of, um, of 
certain kind of affordable housing. Mm -hmm. um, and the city also is starting to like locate um, parcels of land that could be used for affordable housing. How are they doing? How are these projects doing? Is it the right way to do it? I feel like I'm talking a lot. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> this is kind of your wheelhouse. You, you were the, uh, yeah. the housing lead. On yeah, this that. was your plan, I, right? I have yeah. some expertise in this area. <laughs> uh, well, one of the big challenges, especially for community organizations, is that CMHC funds, uh, nor funds from most other uh, public funders, will not pay for the acquisition of property or land. And so that's a massive barrier. There's lots of money to build and renovate. I say lots, it's relative. Um, but there is money to, to build and renovate, but there's not money to get the thing to build or renovate. Um, so that is one place where, you know, for a, a relatively small input of, of energy, money, time, um, municipalities especially can contribute to the development of affordable housing. Um, now, with that lot in Pleasantville, that was Canada lands, so that came from the feds, um, and that, that initiative is a good thing, again. Um, interesting to see the province compete against community for that plot, because I, I know these, these application processes are onerous, yeah. and they take a long time, and a lot of money, and a lot of energy, and community organizations don't have any of those things in, in surplus. Um, so it's interesting to see, you know, the province competing against groups which it funds uh, for this plot of land. Competing how? Well, in the RFP process. The request for, for yeah, proposal. that's right. So they, they would put out an, a request for proposals and then organizations would submit, this is what we'd like to do with it. Um, for which you have to have like quite a, a large sheaf of documents to be considered. So I... And then the province just said, well, actually we're gonna do this alone? Is that what happened? I, I believe they were awarded through the ordinary process. So like, I, I look askance at that um, just because, you know, the province also has surplus land. Um, and so it, I, I am curious about the logic. Again, I mean, they're constructing units of housing. This is good. It's just a question of are we putting our resources in places where they have the greatest impact? And are we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, I think that's the point is, uh, the, you know, what I take from what you're saying there, Hope, and what I've seen too is like there's there's surplus land at, that every level of government has, but they're not coordinating in terms of how they develop those lands for housing and what purposes those, that housing will, will, will play. And so, you know, there's no shortage of, yeah, land or like sort of assets like non-performing assets that are, that, that could be converted into residential spaces. Um, across all levels of government, and there's just no coordination or at least communication around what it could be used for in a, in a, in a coordinated way. And I think that's kind of the frustration. It's like, we're building housing, it's good, but could we be doing more? We don't know. Is there a number in mind that, you know, we, we need X number of units or we will stop, you know, if we get this? Never. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if you, if you want a number, if we're talking about 34% of renter households living in unaffordable housing, call it that, as, as, a, as a stretch goal to start. Um, there was a time when, like, uh, if I'm understanding this right, um, like downtown St. John's, there are houses that are owned by Newfoundland Housing um, that are just tucked away in a neighborhood. Is there a concern that building these blocks that are only for affordable housing instead of, say, a mix of uses or a mix of owners or renters, um, like an income mix, 
Is that, are we ghettoizing affordable housing in this province? Let me talk to you about my favorite business model for affordable housing, which is you have units that are rented at market rates and you have units that are rented at below market rates and they're the same units and it's based on your income and you can't tell if your neighbor's paying the same rent as you or less um, because then you create mixed income communities and I, I think, you know, I was blessed with receiving all of the letters about all of the developments in Ward 2 and beyond uh, where people... I, I once had a woman cry in my office because somebody was putting a basement apartment in on her cul-de-sac. <laughs> this is how people think about renters in this town. Yeah. Um, the classism is appalling. Um, and so, you know, I think that when people live by design amongst folks who are of a different social strata than themselves, they realize that everyone is actually fine. <laughs> but But when that's over there somewhere, it's very easy to paint it with a with a very broad stroke. I think um, so. You know, you you get a couple of different things with that. You get more harmonious communities, and you get affordable housing, and conveniently, the surplus that you make on your market units covers off the deficit on the on the below market units. So it's it's a much more sustainable business model in terms of its requirement for ongoing government subsidy, which they, they like to hear that no, these not, days. We're not doing that now, right? We don't have no. this, this sort of arrangement set up. No, but it's common elsewhere, yes? Common elsewhere. Um, yeah, there's a, you, you know, in Ottawa, uh, Centertown have a, a lovely and very well-developed portfolio that is based on this model. Um, but I don't know anyone here locally who's doing it. No, and I think the the other challenge too is is the the because you're right. Like there's there's these neighborhoods where where these units would be scattered, and and it's you know indiscernible to, to you know just most most folks. Um, and and I really appreciate that because that's how you create mixed income communities. That's how you create uh, you know a healthy you know community and the fabric of the community. And um, what where we need density, uh, and there's a lot of opposition to density here. Is is so when you when you need to do something at scale, it's hard to go and say we'll purchase these two homes here, these three homes here. It's hard to do anything at meaningful scale. And so what happens is you have a large swath of land where you'll develop, and it becomes in fact you know essentially you know you're ghettoizing, or at least you're making it very pronounced that this is a low income community. And there's a lot of concerns on that front. And I mean, I just share my own experience, uh, even though it's not here. It was it was in Ontario. You know, growing up in social housing and new builds, it was very inward facing. And then outside of those those complexes were very, you know, nice homes and nice communities. But you but we create inward facing communities when it's low income. Do you mean literally inward like, like courtyards and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, okay. right? And so instead of outward facing into into the neighborhoods that they're that they're, you know, a part of. And there's a lot of design work that needs to happen, but it's really because it's efficient, right? It's efficient to do it this way. It's efficient for scale. And so locally here, I, I, I would share that concern that if all we're doing is building in, in certain communities and it's only low-income housing, we're just creating a further divide between how we create in mixed-income communities. And, and that's a challenge because I think affordable housing is not just social housing. It's, it's a range of housing options that can meet people's needs. And if the further we divide the gap between those who can afford in the private rental market and those who can't, having to rely on social housing, it's just going to create this kind of a divide. And it will be more noticeable, um, you know, in communities around the city here. I mean, um, 
when I lived in Austin, Texas, we had a friend who uh, was a teacher and she was single and there was a new development on the east side of town where the old airport was. And um, she bought her place at below market rate because she was a teacher. So she, and which meant she had a, a salary that was ridiculously low, but it, she was seen as a sort of a public servant and, um, and they had a special like category for her and uh, her house was identical to her neighbors, but you know, the only thing was that when she did sell and move, it could only be rented to a similar someone in a similar circumstance. So, Sherman, you're going to jump in there. Yeah, uh, when it comes to creating mixed communities, too, um, you know there are other factors uh, at play. Uh, one of the ones that I've spoken about in the past are uh, restrictive covenants uh, that developers can place on properties. Uh, so, in the past, we've uh, you know seen those on uh, things you know like gated communities or you know small streets with with really expensive homes. Um, but now, when you look at Galway. Uh, right, that's that's almost like a town that has a lot more restrictions on the properties than you know the city would normally impose, uh, and you know those run with the property if they're sold. Um, I think for 25 years, so you know it says things like you're not allowed to have a basement apartment. So you know that means you have to have a certain income because you need to be able to afford that home on your own. You know you can't rely on on rental uh, income for it. Uh, so you know it takes away the ability of uh, you know city officials and the city to plan and zone. And, and you know, sort of make the communities that we want because the, the developer has basically said, this is my community and this is how I want it to run and the city you know, doesn't really have a whole lot of say in it. So uh, you know, it's not just a matter of you know, us wanting uh, you know, mixed income communities and that kind of stuff. There are forces working against that too. I think it's an amazing point. Like, will we see an apartment complex in Galway? I'm for it, but, but no. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, that, that put me in mind of, um, you're talking about amenity rich neighborhoods and I think one place where we're seeing this kind of slip in the opposite direction is, um, as a result of, of the proliferation of Airbnb. Um, and you know, I've, I've done a lot of, of digging into this and like, no, Airbnb is not the source of our housing crisis writ large. Um, however, Airbnb is certainly changing the mix in a lot of amenity rich neighborhoods especially downtown um because you know the economic value of land changes quite a lot when you can rent it for 200 bucks a night or 800 bucks a month um so it, it is rendering the rental market in specific localized pockets uh much more expensive which means that then those communities become some kind of mix of random tourists and people with with ample funds and so you lose a lot of folks who otherwise would be living in those communities and you create further stratification of uh, of neighborhoods so i think that is for me that's the main concern honestly isn't it? it's not a supply question it's it's what it does to the fabric of neighborhoods and the ability of people to live in in walkable neighborhoods where they have access to everything they need airbnb you mean yeah um, and also the fact that people like suddenly get the boot in early June and, you know, suddenly have to like find a place now, you know, instead of, you know, or for September mm -hmm. <laughs> when the tourists leave. Yeah. Um, do you guys, well, I, I just wanted to bring up a couple of the reader questions. Uh, in earlier this year, um, the Indy put out some questions to actually to your group, Sherwin, and um, 
asked folks what they felt were the important issues. Um, a lot of things we talked about already have come up. Um, there was a senior who wrote saying, um, she was asking about a cap on rent. She says she's currently paying two-thirds of her income on rent. I think we said that's sort of a common story. Um, there was a lot of um, the concern around discrimination for people um, who had pets and children. Pets is an incredibly common uh, reason to not allow someone in your rental. Um, maybe you want to get in on that one? Uh, pets is a tricky one because it's not something that's actually protected by the Human Rights Act. Right. So it's not a, a you know a protected ground that uh, you know people would usually assume you know would be wrong. Right, uh, like Fluffy kids, doesn't have yeah, any Fluffy rental. doesn't really have uh, you know human rights. Um, the the no kids uh, that one's a tricky one, and uh, that one has been uh, a lot of problem for some people, and it generally seems to be uh, single young mothers that it impacts the most. Uh, there's a perception, I think, from some landlords, just based on some of the comments that I've seen, uh, you know, that uh, a young mom with a kid might not be able to pay rent, you, might, you know, might not be able to go to work if the kid is sick, and, and you know, all of this sort of comes together, you know, for the landlord to mean that they're going to be unstable, uh, they're not going to be able to pay the rent, things are going to come up, and it's not going to be, uh, you know, a positive tendency. That's not the case. Um, that's you know probably not the case in the vast majority of situations. Um, but the more you compound it, like if it's someone uh, you know that's single with a child on income support, then it gets even worse. Um, but the the no children, I've seen ads on Facebook, I've seen ads on Kijiji that specifically say no children. Uh, some landlords try to get. Uh, a little creative with it and say adults only. That's the same thing as saying no children. Um, but the the one that seems to slip through the crack a bit, I think, it's the um, the ones that you see advertised for 50 plus. So under the Human Rights Act, oh. there is an exemption for um, landlords that rent to people that are 55 and older as long as all of the units are for someone 55 and older. It doesn't mean everyone in the building has to be 55, but someone in each unit needs to be 55 or older. Uh, so some are, are playing a little bit loose with the rules and saying 50 plus. There's nothing in any of our laws that say you can discriminate on someone based on age for being 50 plus. So uh, age uh, comes in, you know, as no kids, adults only, 50 plus. Like there's a few different ways that that gets worded. Yeah. Potentially family status then though is a protected grounds of discrimination. So that, that can affect things with, with kids. And um, I was just going to say on the pets. Then the only exception, though, would be service animals. So, discrimination on on uh, basis of disability. So there's there there needs to be accommodation by landlords for for service animals. That's a great point. Um, another thing. Yeah, go ahead, please. I was going to say, and even on the the service animals, to elaborate a little bit more, uh, service animals are protected specifically under the Service Animal Act. Um, there are also emotional support animals, okay. but they they don't fall under the Service Animal Act because it's not the same thing. And the difference is that a service animal is trained to do a specific task. Mm -hmm. uh, so like the one of the most common you would think of would be like a seeing eye dog. Uh, you know, it has a specific job that it does where an emotional support animal keeps you company and, you know, by doing so helps with, you know, things like anxiety, uh, you know, PTSD, that kind of stuff. So there's a misunderstanding, uh, partly because the, uh, the law here says that a, a service animal has to have certain qualifications as prescribed in the regulations, and then we didn't pass any regulations to say what that was. Um, so they kind of use that if it behaves like a service animal and you say it's a service animal, then we just take your word for it kind of thing. Um, 
but the, the misunderstanding is that a landlord has to accept a service animal and can treat an uh, emotional support animal as a pet. Uh, based on what we've been told by, from the Human Rights Commission, an emotional support animal falls under uh, you know, the duty to accommodate, the same as many other things do. So while they don't have the automatic protection that a service animal has under the Service Animal Act, the landlord still has a duty to accommodate up to undue hardship for an emotional support animal if the documentation is there to say that it's for a, a medical reason. So emotional support animals are not service animals, but they're not necessarily pets either. And that's a, a problem that some people run into. This is a little salty, but my, my first thought listening to uh, talking about you know uh, service animals is like, this implies the existence of an affordable rental unit that someone could get, <laughs> which in the vast majority of cases is a, is a unicorn. Um, so that's you know a massive issue that we're contending with too is an aging population and, and folks with, with disabilities not having options available. These and like so a situation where they're like years long wait lists kind of thing? Absolutely, yeah. But both in social housing and in, in the market writ large. Um, did you want to add anything? Or, no, okay. Um, the few other issues that they brought up, uh, one was slum landlords and um, enforcement. They say in a lot of cases, like the wrong thing has happened, but um, the tenancy board, I guess, maybe the enforcement mechanism is lacking? Uh, lacking is one word. Okay. Um, they don't do it at all. Uh, so when they updated the Residential Tenancies Act in 2018, they increased the fines um, for, I think it was $400 before, uh, to now I think it's a maximum of like 10,000. Uh, and they said at the time it was because no one took the old fines seriously. So I asked the obvious question, was like, well, how many people have been fined? And they said, oh, none, because we don't, we don't do that. So who does it? You, us, me, you, the landlord. So, so they say that okay. if, because under the Residential Tenancies Act, there's two parts. There's, uh, I'm going to call it, say, the, a civil part to make things right between the landlord and the tenant. You know, you didn't pay your rent or you damaged something. So they'll issue an order to sort that out. But then there's a penalty for breaking the law. The same as if, you know, you drink and drive or, you know, you go speeding and they catch you. It's the government that finds you for that. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about pulling over a speeding driver and taking them to court to find them. That's not your job. The police will do that. <laughs> so under the Residential Tenancies Act, it's not that way. They say if you're a landlord or a tenant and you feel like the other person has broken the law, you have to go and take that to court on your own time and dollar and convince the court that they should be fined. And the kicker is they couldn't even tell me that you know, if you were to win that, that you would get the money back because fines generally go to general government revenue. So landlords and tenants are expected to do the enforcement, but without any reasonable expectation of even making back what they paid. Um, so there is no enforcement of the Residential Tenancies Act, basically. Wow. Uh, does anything about that surprise you, Kevin? Uh, you know too much about this, probably. No, right? and I, well, I, we see it more in the dispute resolution okay. side, so the disputes between landlords and tenants. But I think there's there's a lot of challenges there, and it's that board is um, intended to be an easier process, and that people can bring disputes on their own. They don't need to hire a lawyer necessarily for previously that would would had to go to court. Uh, say small claims court or provincial court to to uh, deal with the dispute, but it's still a tricky process to navigate. Even though it's it's meant to be simpler, and I think a lot about um, you know populations facing other barriers to accessing justice and 
to being able to enforce their rights and resolve disputes. We see a lot with new Canadians um, coming in who probably coming from a different legal background or less familiar with with our legal processes and then trying to navigate through this still you know legalistic uh, uh, process of resolving disputes so you know if there's we, we try to have the opportunity for education on the front end of knowing what your rights are and how you would deal with the dispute but I think there's a lot of, of room for um, more advocacy more representation for people who get to the residential tendencies board and are trying to, to sort this all out um, and when I took a look across the country, uh, Ontario and BC were uh, two of the first um, that set up separate uh, mechanisms from dispute resolution to handle um, the fact that you know someone has broken the law. So there's two different, you can go through dispute resolution or you can go through, uh, I can't even remember what they call uh, that, that department now, but uh, Nova Scotia now is looking at adding the same thing in so Making when I raised, somewhat available yeah yeah so when I when I raised this with service Newfoundland and, and I spoke to the minister uh, you know she said I made some good points and that she was going to look into it um, because I don't think that we should be uh, you know setting our bar low well, like when we look across the the country the fact that other places don't do it doesn't really mean anything the fact that you know Ontario and BC and now Nova Scotia have seen merit in you know dealing with this enforcement piece that's where we should be aiming to we should be trying to aim for the top and not the bottom. Uh, so they haven't really, you know, come back with anything yet. Uh, it's fairly recent conversation that I was having with them, uh, and they said that they were going to look into it. Uh, so fingers crossed, maybe something with that will will change in the, the near future. The uh, the sheriff's office has a weird role here, right? <laughs> like that. <laughs> Just briefly speak to that, or, or Kevin. I don't They're know. They're often the ones to be enforcing evictions, for example. So. It's, you know, not not the police, but it would be yeah, the sheriff's office, which is like a branch of the courts. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So so kind of what happens when when you go to Service Newfoundland and uh, and you get an order, mm -hmm. then they can certify that order and basically make it an order of the court, and then it's enforced the same way any other order of the court would be enforced, which is through the sheriff's office. Like the the police are usually like criminal matters, so they wouldn't be involved in. Uh, Landlord-tenant situations, unless uh, you know, maybe there was some sort of physical altercation or an argument, or someone needed to be escorted for safety reasons. Sometimes they might is be involved. It, is this primarily for evictions, or are they enforcing other parts uh, of the evictions? Are the 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 big one? Yeah, I don't really know what other resident like residential tenancy stuff the sheriff's office would be involved in. Nothing I can think of, because otherwise it's it's the it's the board, you know, making an order for compensation or making an order for performance of something so it's it's that's where it comes down to I think is often evictions and people I think are under the impression that that's something the police would do and, and come in once an eviction notice has been given but it's uh, a lengthier process and the sheriff's office would be involved fascinating lock and key is produced by Olivia ball Edited by Luke Quinton, and I am the co-host, Andy Bullman. Music by Jake Nickel. Our art is by Shanley Pomeroy. A big thank you to Tom Baird and Sarah Swain. Justin Brake is the editor of The Independent, and for more in-depth stories about the housing crisis, you can go to theindependent.ca. And we want to thank everyone who shared their stories with us over this past year. The Lock and Key podcast received funding from the Community Housing Transformation Center. The center. 
However, the views expressed are the personal views of the author, and the center accepts no responsibility for them.